Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Worzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with James Kernan, founder and CEO of Clara Homes. I've known James for a very long time. We actually went to University of Miami together. So it's been amazing to see James grow his career and do a lot of exciting things. We discuss how James got started in real estate, buying and building some amazing spec homes in LA with Starkitects, then somehow moving to Miami at the absolute best time possible during COVID, what he learned building multi-multi-million dollar spec homes, and then now transitioning into luxury multifamily residential, how he pivoted, how he's built the business, how he structures his deals, how he's thought about getting debt for deals across a portfolio, and how he's raised capital, including investing all of his own capital in his deals. Please enjoy my conversation today with James Kernan. James, everyone's start in real estate, I think most often happens in residential real estate, and then they get into it in two ways. Either they are just an entrepreneur and they do it themselves, or they go work for a real estate company. Your start was very similar to mine. We started like flipping houses and you did it in a very big way, very different than I did. So I thought a good place to start the conversation would be for you to walk everyone through how you got into real estate. Sure. So my family had a, a real estate development company based in New York. And since I was 14, when I no longer wanted to go to summer camp, I had to work for the family. And I was at one of our hotels. It was at the front desk, at the concierge, whatever wasn't part of the union, I was able to do. And so you know, each summer I would work for the family. And then when I got out of school, I had to work for Rose Associates for six months or any sort of non-family firm that would take me. And so I worked for them for six months and I finally got the call that, okay, you can now come work for us. And so I started working for the family. We were running... I, ultimately, I ran the New York City sort of portfolio where we had built in the 70s and 80s many different buildings and we had sold them off as as condos but we retained some sponsor units about 285 throughout the various different buildings and one day my uncle who's running the company said we don't want these anymore sell them do what you need to do and that was it that was all the instruction that was there and so as i was looking around like i don't even know what to do so i had to kick everyone out i had to do full gut renovations for every single apartment I had to do all the sales and marketing. I started something called Parker Realty. I had some people, and we ended up selling 185 apartments in a year and a half. And that was how I got into the sort of construction side of things and seeing how things work. 
it's very different in New York than it is here. In New York, I don't even think we use permits. Like here, everything is, you know, by the book. And so that was a great experience. And I was young and you don't know what you don't know when you're young. And so I wanted to go out and be a developer and buy all this real estate and build all this real estate. And it's funny because everyone wants to be a developer until they have to be a developer, right? You have so many headaches that happen all the time, but which we can get into later. But so I, I went to my uncle and my cousin who are running the company. I said, I- I'm young. I want to go do some more stuff. And they were at the time sort of at the tail end of their careers. And they were happy being asset managers. They didn't really want to go out and build or develop. I mean, now I see why. But at the time, you know, it, it wa- I wasn't happy. I was, there's other things going on with the family that I'm not going to get into. But I was just looking at myself one day in the mirror and said, this is not really what I want to do. I don't want to just go from building to building and like deal with problems. I want to be able to like create things and, you know, and, and build things. I think it's very cool to be able to see a piece of land and like envision in your mind what you can do with it and negotiate the financing and all of that stuff. Because I'm creative, but I can't sing or dance. So that's sort of my outlet to sort of be able to be creative. And so I left the family business and it was a little bit shocking just because it had been a family business that my great grandfather had started. And so from then I, was trying to buy stuff in New York at 25 years old. For a year, I was putzing around. I was trying to buy things. And it's very hard to buy things in New York City where you're a tiny, you're not even a minnow, right? And you're dealing with sharks. So it was 2000, the summer of 2013, I left. I mean, at that point, if you had just bought like a garbage can, you would have made money in New York City. So in hindsight, I probably should have bought what I almost had an offer on, but I didn't know anything. So, and I got chickened out of everything. And so, I had a friend who was going back and forth to LA a lot for business, unrelated to real estate. And he said, oh, there's a guy who wants to build a couple of spec homes in LA. He knows a lot about real estate. He can get you this new architect whose name is Paul McLean. And at the time in LA in 2013, all these modern homes had been coming out and they were selling for huge numbers. And we were able to get Paul McLean who sort of invented that sort of home. And so he set us up and we got along well. And again, not knowing what you don't know, I said, sure, let's build the house. So I sort of had a little bit of money and I put every dollar of it at risk. <laughs> it was looking back at it, oh, what the fuck was I thinking, right? But I was single. I had no kids at the time. Very different. I was 25, 26 years old. And so we, we bought this piece of real estate in a probate sale. It was the most fun I've ever had buying real estate. We went to the courthouse. You had to have a cashier's check for 10% of the purchase price. I was willing to go up to, I think it was up to $4 million. The this price started at like 2.8, I think was the reserve. And the there's like 30 guys looking at like the surfer dude was there and like, you know, the the Persian developers were there. Like they were all like just fiending. Everyone's fiending. And I remember them wanting to do the increments in $3,000 clips. And that just didn't seem smart to me because anyone who's going to spend a few million dollars on something, $3,000 million, $3, is nothing. So we're going to be here forever. So you have to raise your hand, James Kernan, buyer, whatever. And then you say the name, uh, the amount. And we, I, I, from, the, from the start, I just come out higher than everyone else because I want to get rid of as many people as I can. At this point, I'm like sweating. I'm like foam. I feel like I'm about to get in a fight. It was like, 
so much fun. And anyway, it was between me and one other guy and he like walks over to me and like gets in my face and he sticks out his hand. He goes, just so you know, I was willing to go to three something. I said, good, because I was going to four. <laughs> and so he goes, congratulations. And I like jumped up and I screamed like, like literally it was 25 years old. And the judge goes, get out. So we got kicked out. We gave them the deposit. And a few months later, we closed. And that's how we started building this house. I didn't know that the GC wasn't going to pay so much attention to it. And, you know, that the architects, the drawings that we had were more like a design build <laughs> than a full set of CDs and our engineer plans. It was more of like a Build-A-Bear, like as you go, like, oh, let's do that here. So needless to say, it was somewhat of a disaster in terms of we were a million five over budget. We were about six or eight months delayed. But Sometimes fortuitous events happen outside of, you know, bad, bad things. And the market picked up even more. And we sold the house for $20 million in three weeks. Three weeks three from weeks when? From when I finished, from the time I listed it to the time it sold was three weeks. And what was your basis in the house? The basis was mm, just under 12. And so that was my first bit of feeling of like, making money on my own. And it was a great feeling. And so I had I had done two more homes. One was right across the street. This was in the Bird Streets, like up Doheny Estates. Th- this house that we just spoke about was on Doheny. There was one on Marchita, which was across the street, which the times had shifted. Trump had gotten elected and sort of LA was in a hysteria meltdown at the time. And so because that house had sold so quickly for so much, I got cocky and told the broker what to list the house for. And and it was it, we got a lot of interest, but buyers are are smart, right? They know what the market is. Everyone can look up at Zillow and do comps and math now, right? So we we missed the timing a little bit. There was some other there was like a moratorium that had happened. So it had delayed the project that had nothing to do with me. And so that house we pretty much broke even, not great. And then the third house that I did, I bought in Lower Bel Air. I was on the corner of Perugia and and Bellagio right by the Bel Air Country Club. And we bought that when well, I say we is me, but I bought that in in February of sixteen. And in November of sixteen, I flipped it. I bought it for seven and a half. I was into it for another like another million. Well, and a half. I flipped it for sixteen and a half million. The guy, the family took it over, said, We'll finish it. Said, wow, this is amazing. This real estate stuff. <laughs> this is, this is too easy. This is too easy. So I had sold all three homes in LA. That's sort of how I got my start in 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 single family homes. But that first project where things went wrong was the best lesson, better than any money that you could have made because it really showed you that you have to chase every penny and that you need to know what you're looking at. So now when someone says, "Oh, you need number 5 rebar, number 8 rebar," I know what that means, right? Or, you know, we need footings to go down this deep. I can read geotechnical reports like as the company has scaled and gotten much larger, so too has the knowledge and sort of what you need to know to be able to be successful and not get taken advantage of. We're going to talk about that. I want to go back to when you left your family's firm, like how did you have the confidence to be able to go out on your own and take that leap? And what were some of the things that you were thinking and the emotions that you were feeling during that time? So I've always been a somewhat little bit of a gambler, right? Now it's become a lot more educated gambling, but I never was afraid to lose, to put capital at risk because I believed in myself. Many other people at the time, you know, 
thought I was stupid. I didn't know what I was doing. They didn't, and that's fine. But I, I believed in myself and I had a work ethic for things that I find interesting. I, I want to do. I know everything about it. I, I do as much research as possible. Things that don't interest me, I, I don't pay attention to. So just knowing that the confidence that I had, and at the time I was not married, I had no kids, I was single. So why not take risks when you're young to hopefully reap the rewards when you're older? And the learning experience that I had by just being on my own, showing like outside of the family bubble, like it's not a nice place. Like people are not there to necessarily support you. Like, you know, so those were all lessons that sort of had culminated to sort of just going out and finding an urge. I wasn't happy at the position that I was at in the family business. And I said, something has to change. And so I just took a leap. When you went to LA, why did it have to be a probate sale? Couldn't you have just bought like a piece of land from a broker or found so one? We, we, we were looking at real estate. I lost out on something else. I had made an offer. We lost out. And there wasn't anything that was so great that I wanted to take that first leap in because I was driving around and I was sort of also getting educated about LA and all the different areas. And so I remember flying back to, I think it was Miami, actually. I was flying back to Miami and the broker calls me. There's a great lot in the great in a great street on the right area. Like you need, we need to come and focus on this. Literally the next day we flew back to LA. And that's how we we bought that pro. It was totally fortuitous how it happened. And what were the early things that you envisioned when you were going to start out and do the project? Was there like a criteria that you had, or you just said, I'm going to hire the architect and he'll figure it out. He'll do everything. I mean, yeah, no, I thought, oh, I'll hire the architect and he'll do everything and do all the engineering and, and, and all the design. And then like, I only had X amount of dollars to put into this project. And that was like my life. I had no other money, no other inheritance, nothing. But, and it was the cost of the house was double of what I actually had. Right. So I was like, I didn't even think about, holy shit, how am I going to finish this house? Right. I didn't know any of this stuff. So I tried to get a construction loan. Every single bank laughed me out the door. Like, what's the movie with Will Smith when he's like walking around with like the things to sell and I was like, get out, get out, get out. That's what it was like. And I kept going back and back to First Republic Bank in LA. And there was a guy who was running the construction side of things. His name is Steve Feller. And at that time, I think he's, he's since retired, but at that time, he was like, listen, the kid has everything in there. He's already started the foundations. This is actually happens to be a relatively safe bet because the appraised value for the land is double than what he paid for it. So we are in a pretty good... So the fourth time I went back to City National Bank, they gave me the loan. And they told me that this was their riskiest loan. First on Republic. Book. First Republic. They no longer exist anymore, but it wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me the loan. And then they actually, I paid it back with eight months left on my on my term. And ever since then, they were like, whatever you want, like you did great for us. And so like, we appreciate that. What did you learn about banking and relationships from that period? They want your firstborn. And so that's why I think these credit facilities are popping up all over the place because it's just significantly easier to do business with. And you have a surety of closing, which is the number one most important thing that you need when you're buying real estate. What's a credit facility? So a credit facility is kind of like a, a private debt institution where they're lending money. They either have a fund where they've gone out and raised X number of capital 
as equity, and then they have a credit line to upsize that for the debt side, and they make fees similar to how a bank would. But they are able to think outside the box when thinking about real estate. A lot of the times, the local banks, the larger banks, they literally have a checklist. Does he do this? Is there this? Do we have deposits? Are we going to lend him his own money? So if you don't fit that criteria, they they don't know how to think. They like have like a, a combustion problem in their brain. And so these guys have all been about, around real estate. They understand the ups and downs and the goods and the bads and how sort of nothing ever is exactly how the plan is going to be. So they're willing to work with you a lot more unless you're some of the loan to own guys. But for the most part, they're there for you. And so by working with one company specifically for a number of years, they have now become sort of like family and they've allowed me to sort of grow the company into where it's been. And if I had to, they could close a loan in two weeks for me. They trust that what I'm doing is a good project at Pencils. They're not overly concerned with necessarily like being a first-time borrower and not knowing what you're doing. So that's, that's where we're at now. In LA during that time, there are all these kind of modern homes being built. How did you think about differentiating yours from the competition? And did you even think about competition and run comps and analysis? Or was it just like, let's rip and go? It was let's rip and go. We, in 13, we were early. And so we finished when we were at lunch, we were talking about sometimes when you build into the downside, you come out looking really smart on the other side. And that's sort of, I got lucky with in, in that regards. We, by the time I was finishing the house, you know, the plastic surgeon was a, a developer, the dentist was a developer. And so the market got inundated and flooded with these modern homes. And when you, it's all supply and demand, right? There's not that many people that can afford $20 million homes who want to be in LA in a super modern home. So the 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 pool of buyers got much smaller. And so I, we got I got lucky. That that's really what happened. You, you know, in business you got to be lucky too. What did you learn from those first couple of LA projects that have stuck with you? Chase every penny, really know what you're looking at. You have to do a lot more analysis and research than what you think, and you need to underwrite on a on a conservative basis and not a wish list basis, right? Like what you think can go you always know it's going to cost more and it's going to take longer. I've never come in under budget and under time. It just doesn't happen because these are things that are built with physical hands and you're you're beholden to people. What are the biggest risks now that you would tell people to think about if they want to start building spec homes? So it's significantly more work than you need than you think because every room has a different condition. So now that I'm doing multifamily buildings, the biggest difference is a single family home is quicker to do the design process. Oh, well, I want the, I want my living room here. I want the gym there. I want that. But it's significantly more challenging to build because every room may have a tie beam or a column going through and there's different conditions and different ceiling heights and you have to put mechanical and all this MEP stuff in there. And so it becomes much more challenging. These are also a lot of the times a lot more higher end custom where you have ringlets and all these specific little details. Whereas a building, I would say, is much more challenging to get out of the ground. But then once you go, if you have good engineers, you're, you know, you're stacking up the whole building. And so th th that's the biggest difference to me is the stop and start and then figuring out how the buildings are built. Eventually, you decided to come to Miami. What was that about? Because you had two successful deals. Well, I would say three successful deals. If you don't yeah. lose money, that's a success. But you had two ones that were probably home runs. 
Were you seeing something in LA that drove you out of that market at that time? Yeah. So again, the 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 nose job guy was a was a developer now, and so there was just too much competition, not enough buyers, and the political climate sort of had changed. It always was like left, but now it's bonkers. So you know, I didn't want to be around any of that. Also, at the time, I just had just started dating, who's now my wife. Her family was in Miami, and she was living in New York. She didn't really want to moved to LA. And so we moved back to New York for a year before we came in for 2017, before we, we ended up buying a lot of stuff in Miami. NIMBYism in LA is a major problem. So there's a big housing shortage, yet no one wants anything built in their backyard. Did you experience that in the high-end residential space? For the single family homes that I was, when I was doing it in, in LA or in Miami? LA. No, I I had no I had really no problems with the neighbors in LA because ultimately I think people realize the value of their homes. Well, I mean I had one crazy lady who didn't cause me problems with like the city or permitting, but if like someone was one eighth of an inch on her space in the driveway, she would come screaming at the guy. She would flash them. She was really psychotic. I just thought about that, actually. I haven't thought (laughs) thought about that that lady in in six years. But otherwise, no, I think, you know, building in LA and building in Miami, there are some things that are much easier and then there's some things that are much harder. So can you break that down? What's the difference in terms of building in LA versus building in Miami? So it was easier to excluding Beverly Hills, because that's their own municipality and m- much harder to deal with. But if you're in city of LA, before all of this crazy ULA stuff happened and just normal LA, you were getting permits. You can go up to the counter. They were giving you structural when you needed it and MEP. So the permitting process in LA was significantly easier for me than it is here in Miami right now. I mean, the beach in Miami is just is nuts. But so that was easier. What's easier here is there's no unions. So you don't have to deal with you know, LADWP, you don't have to deal with the electricians at all. Like working with union guys are... You had unions on residential projects? Or is it just a different mentality? No, there are... there. First of all, it's a different mentality. And second of all, there are a few... I think fire was union, LADWP was union. The guys who had to do all the fire sprinkler systems inside the house were uh, were union. It's different. It's it's different. And I mean, it's challenging no matter where you are. What have you learned about finishes because a lot of the times someone lists a house for sale and the realtor has to say, I know you love your wall covering and your design and how it looks, but someone's not going to pay you for your taste. In a spec home, Mm -hmm. you have to design for a buyer and hope that they're not going to want to rip it out because it's going to ding your value. So how have you learned to think about design and build something that someone's going to want to live in and not change? So there are a few things, obviously trial and error. When I was doing those apartments for my family back in New York City, and I was also the sales guy, you hear the comments, oh, why would you do this? They didn't know that it was <laughs> you know, my shitty work, <laughs> but why the hell would the closet open into the into the clo- the door open into the closet? You you know, you hear all of these annoying comments and you're like, wow, these are actually make sense, and this is how you do it. Then I hired really good architects where I try to hire the best in class architects because I think like, for example, all the, my home, the homes that I've done in Miami Beach have been Strang, Max Strang. And so hiring best in class helps 
I actually, I get my wife involved from the floor plan perspective because I think it's interesting to see like from a woman's perspective, like I don't think about the kids when I'm designing a home, but the kids are going to ultimately live there, right? I don't think about certain things that from a woman's perspective because I don't have that perspective. And so she helps with the floor plans and sort of helps decide on things. And then also it's just what I I try to envision if I was going to live there, but it has to be broad enough so that a family could move in there, a single man or woman could move in there, uh, a gay couple could move. Like it just has to be sort of appealing for everyone. I'm not doing anything that has like a pink wall here or a green wall there. It's all sort of earth and ethereal t- tones and travertines and oaks where that it's a great canvas and a great base, but people can always add to it if they want it to and, and sort of personalize it because I may like, you know, th- things some way. So everyone is on their own taste. So I try to be sort of not basic, but really high in quality materials, but not so specific where people won't like it. How do you know how far to push it? Because in a spec home, the goal is to make money, but in the level and the finished quality and the value that you were doing, you had to attract a certain buyer with a certain level of finish, a certain wow factor. How did you know like what line to go to and what line not to cross? So there are certain things that I'm sure most other spec home guys may or may not do. But for example, spraying isonine in, in, in the roof, like it's not a code thing. But as someone who wants my buyers to be happy, and obviously I don't really want to get called unless it's over to come over for a drink, you do certain things that you don't cheap out on. And then, for example, low voltage is something that you could spend 50 grand on or you could spend 2 million. So I just do very basic. I do the pre wiring in CAT 6. I leave space for everything in the panels, but that's really a buyer's choice. I don't do drapes or any of that stuff because some people want drapes, some people don't. But also using name brand whether it's Multaney Kitchens or or Bofi Kitchens, then I don't necessarily, I think they're all amazing, but I think Custom Millworker is actually sometimes a little bit better. But if you don't have the name brand, people are like, oh, he cheaped out. Even though this kitchen could be three times more expensive than a Bofi kitchen. But you need to have the name brand because they want to they want to know that you're spending a lot of money on the house. And so also by having an architect like Max Strang, who doesn't let you sort of cheap out on certain things, that helps. So it's it's a lot of little things that come together to show. I also think it's like when you you know, luckily, I have I've sort of pre-sold every single home, all of all six of them that we've done in Miami Beach. So I never took it to completion, and that's because when people are walking through, the design is well intended, the site is clean. Even though they could be the best GC ever, if it's a dirty site, people think that you're cutting corners and you don't know what you're doing. So that's something that I'm a little OCD about. Um, And it's just staying on top of everyone and knowing every answer to every question that someone may have. How did you decide to start selling some of these homes pre-TCO or pre-completion? Was that something you learned in LA or were you forced into it? No. So LA, the homes were all done, finished. You know, music playing, fireplaces on, except for the third one that sold with just a foundation. In Miami, we were finishing up the homes sort of March, April, May, June of 20. So that was right in the craziness of COVID where like, I didn't know if I was going to lose the company or, you know, thank God the, the, the inverse of that happened. And that was a really crazy time. And so there was a, a couple that was moving down to Miami 
who wanted not a, a white box modern home. And so the first two homes that I built on Alice and I, one was like a modern uh, farmhouse. And then the other one was, imagine like a Palm Beach estate and like a Miami home like had a baby. Like that's what that home was. And so it was an older couple. They bought the house and it was in March of 20, we signed a contract. And so to me, I probably undersold it, but it wiped out my debt for the two projects. So it made me be able to sleep at night. And so that the other project was primarily mostly profit. So just getting a little bit of added security. And so that happened, I said, you know, let me finish, let me try and do this for other homes because I'm always willing to walk away from a little bit of money at the tail end to be able to have a sure thing today because at NAN, it allows me to go on and do other projects. It's allowed me to grow in the company. And I also want to be able to sleep at night, right? Because in any development, if it's ground up, you're buying, you're making a bet on today for tomorrow. So you don't know, you, no one knew COVID was happening. No one knew sort of all these different wars were going to be popping up and inflation was going to go through the roof. So, you know, I always joke, I'm like, I just want one year of development where like, I just can't get a switch gear, like just something normal, right? Like, oh, the, the, the kitchens are delayed. But this has been navigating through COVID, having the, the craziness of inflation where our projects were up 45%. 45% from the time we did a performa to the time we were able to start. And concrete was going up I don't know, 20 bucks a yard every month. It was, it was mayhem. And so just being able to navigate through that and sort of having good capital partners for the, the buildings that we'll get into. But the single family stuff has all been myself. So it's all just been like you know playing chess and staying on your feet and having good relationships just so you can get things done. So you're building three homes during COVID. How did you navigate through inflation if you're also then selling homes and locking in a price. So what happened was interesting. The three homes had all sold during COVID, but before the inflation happened, the crazy inflation happened. So the new round of homes is where I sort of got screwed, let's say. You know, my cost in my performa was eight hundred a foot. It ended up going to a thousand bucks a foot in, in, in some cases. But I had not locked in the contracts for the three new homes. And so there was a time that the price per square foot was increasing higher than my costs were. And so inflation happened in the good and the bad. And right. so I was able to absorb most of those costs in the sale prices just because I'm not locking things in, which is one of the reasons as the company's gotten bigger and I've done much larger projects, I, I don't necessarily build condos for this exact reason. Because you don't know what's going to happen. And I don't think I'm smart enough to time a market. And so to me, I don't want to lock in a price that I can't deliver to or make any money to three years later. So staying on the single family homes, we're going to get to the bigger stuff. When you are building these, designing them, at what point is it okay to bring in a potential buyer and say, here's the dream or here's what I'm building? What do you need to have in place before it's too early in order to take advantage of your strategy of selling it before you complete it? So every time I do a home, I say, I'm waiting to the end. I'm not letting anyone see it. And then there's somewhere like halfway through the process, I get nervous. I don't know, a war pops up or inflation happens or like it's costing more. And like, oh God, you know, there's only one pot. What's going to happen? And so I'm like, I got to sell it now. And I get nervous always in every single project. And in hindsight, I should have just stayed true and not sort of every buyer comes in and says, This is great. We're gonna we're gonna change the color of the kitchen. 
Meanwhile, like 17 revisions later, they've changed absolutely everything in the house and it's caused many delays. But at the end of the day, like these guys are spending lots and lots of money and I want them to be happy. And, you know, it has my name on it attached in perpetuity, basically. So, you know, I want everyone to be happy. There are certain things I could have done in hindsight to make it a little bit more beneficial for, for myself. Not that I'm paying for their changes, but if de- more delays could have happened, I could have, there are certain things that I could have thought about now, but you live and you learn. What do you think about residential brokers? I always think it's kind of funny that residential brokers always try and build their own brand and not really the brand for the house or what they're selling. What, what do you think about their role in the process? Because at these times you had a reputation in LA, you now came to Florida, you sold some things, you were getting a reputation. Did you need brokers? Like, couldn't, Could you have just sold it yourself? Like, Where does their role play out in this whole game? So the first three homes, I represented myself. I didn't have a broker. They weren't on the market. The other homes, because this is of the success of pre-selling and just the voracious appetite of all these buyers that were coming down and still today, the lack of inventory that's out there, if it's a good product in a good location, it's going to sell. Even today, like if something's brand new on Miami Beach on the water and it's relatively well-priced, it's gone right away because there's still such a huge demand. But so I had hired some brokers just because I was busy with other things, just, you know, and they're also like, a lot of them are like piranhas. They're just like, they just, they just want the project. And so there are a couple, a handful of very good brokers that take it seriously and that are, are, I think are very professional. And then there's sort of the other group, which we don't need to talk about, but the other group. The other group. That got PPP money and got arrested yeah, exactly. and everything. Everyone, everyone now wants to be a, a real estate broker. Everyone. everyone. What is like p- locations important, finding the right spots important? Like, what are the key characteristics for someone that's going out and going to do a very high end spec home? Let's talk about in Florida specifically. Sure. What do you need to look for? What do you need to think about? So, I would always rather be the worst house on the best street than the best house on the worst street. So, I look for things that have bar- higher barriers to entry. Miami Beach on the water, they're not making any more land. Just having the appetite to go through the permitting process, which now is egregious, you need to have the stomach to handle all of those things. And so I like to go into areas that are more confined or constrained with just the amount of sheer building that's allowed in the, in the areas. You know, you go to areas like Pinecrest, which I don't build in or something, there's much more land and, you know, things are much easier to come by. Miami Beach always has had sort of, for the most part, has always been the premier destination for someone who's moving to Miami. They always look at Miami Beach first, and then maybe they can't find something big enough to fit their needs or their kids are going to go to school all the way down south. So there are other factors. But for the most part, most people say, I want to move to Miami Beach. And so that is alluring to me. And just knowing like, like Manhattan, they're not building any more land. So I think that it will hold up better in worse times. Is there still a pricing asymmetry between Miami and other markets throughout the country that make it attractive? And well, I guess what I want to ask is at the beginning, like what was so special about Miami? Was it always special? Did it become special at COVID? And then talk about like the dislocation that you saw in the real estate market when you got here. So I mean, my mom is from Miami, so I grew up coming here. We we went to University of Miami. And so I always loved Miami. And when 
after I'd sold these buildings, uh, these, uh, these houses in LA, I was in New York trying to think about what to do next. And we came down to Miami uh, for a week to stay at my in-laws. And every time I was in Miami, I never wanted to go back to New York. And every time I was in New York, I couldn't wait to get down to Miami. And I just thought that there was a really large sort of dislocation in pricing. The delta between New York City, Los Angeles, and Miami didn't make sense because it wasn't a 50% less better city. It's, in my mind, a better city. And so when the highest price per square foot in Miami was maybe call it $1,000 a foot, and New York was at five or 10,000, and LA was at three to 5,000, it didn't make sense that there was such a big difference. And so obviously, I had no idea that COVID was coming, but I always felt that there's no reason for this place not to take off. And that's sort of how I've always looked at my real estate too, is trying to drive through areas and say, this is amazing. Why is this not in Bay Harbor, which we'll get to, that, that was things like that. And so we bought the stuff in, in, in Miami and, and, and COVID happened and it's sort of that's the rest is history from there. Seeing all these spec homes get built in Miami in a very short amount of time, where do you think a lot of people made mistakes building these homes? So for the most part of the homes that got sort of soaked up, soaked up in the last two couple of years, I would say 80% of those are not spec homes. They're actually for owner users. And so that's also why there's such a constraint on supply. I think that some of the homes, they might've all gone to the same architect. And so there's no edge in a lot of these homes. So like, I don't want to build the white box modern home. That's not my style. I'm not knocking it. It's just not something that I think in 20 years, people are going to look back and like, wow, that's amazing. I want to have sort of more timeless uh, pieces of real estate that people will like. And so I think that's maybe the the largest sort of thing. I'm like, well, people could have done a little bit better on some of these homes. It is a weird thing because you drive down some areas in Miami Beach where a lot of these mega yeah. headline homes are, and a lot of them look the same. And a lot of the interiors also look the same and they don't look that customized. They no. look kind of, they all went to they the same hard. place. They look buy. very hard and sort of like cold, right? And the other thing is, uh, especially like on a, on a place like North Bay Road, where it faces west and you get the sun setting, these homes that are all glass modern homes, it's very hard to keep cool. So just from from that perspective as well, it, it takes it takes a lot more uh, from engineering side of things too, just to have these big glass white modern boxes. Since you started, well, you started transitioning out of single family into something else right around the time when interest rates started to rise and double and triple. What is the single family home market like now in Miami Beach as we sit here today? So just to piggyback on some other things that I had mentioned, Miami Beach real estate on the water, new construction, there's very little slowdown. The transaction volume has gone down, but that's a misnomer because there's just nothing to buy. The price per square foot keeps going up and up, like high single digits each quarter, each month, whatever, whenever the reports come out. So, you know, people like to hate on Florida because of how well it's doing. And so you hear, you hear or you read articles that, oh, Miami's done, it's slowing down. That's actually really not the case. The case is, is that if you have less to buy, there's just going to be less volume and less transactions. It's just simple math. But 
what you really need to look at and the telltale sign is what is happening on the price per square foot on the sale end. And so I think anything that's old, anything that needs to be redone or land, it's a little bit slow. But if someone has taken the time to go through the shit to get the house built and it's good, it will sell very quickly. And so I think that's sort of where the bifurcation is in the market. You know, do someone want to spend three years building their home? Like if you are a guy who is going to build and spend millions and millions of dollars on a home, you probably have a very successful company somewhere else that you can't dedicate three years of your life to, you know, what kind of uh, outlets do you want? Like those are, these are questions that are important, but like you're not going to want to spend that time. So I think that's why there's a huge value in, in getting the homes done for other people. What makes for a good general contractor? I think someone who's honest, open book policy, who fights for the client and not necessarily the sub. Now, you need to be fair. Like if I make a change, then we own it and we pay for it. But you know, a lot of the times these subs, I call it like the sub 20, where they come down 20% below just to screw you on the back end. And so just trial and error and finding the subs that you generally like to work with. I generally work with the same three MEP guys in all my homes just because we have a good relationship and they don't try to you know, gouge me every every step and turn. But it's very easy here and other places to get completely destroyed with GCs and stuff because there's so many tricks that they can do that you don't really know what the real number is. You know, you don't know if you get, they're getting kickbacks and anything like that. So it's easy to get taken advantage of. How much do you consider the environment like sea level rise or hurricanes or any of this stuff in what you're building in residential today? So obviously we have to live by what the code says. So all the homes today are built to category five, the windows, it's all concrete, you know, shear walls, solid concrete and block walls. So from that perspective, the homes are very safe. We generally go a little bit higher than what the the BFE, the base flood elevations that's set by FEMA, they're at plus one. So that's, I think, eight or nine feet. Ours are all 10 or 11 feet above. We build the sea walls closer to eight feet instead of the 7.26. So there's little things that we can do because water likes to find the lowest point and it will always find the lowest point. So I'd rather be higher than my neighbor. It's pretty funny. There are pictures of houses in Miami Beach where you have an old 60s style house and it's like the roof is at the first floor of the new house. And it's That's just shocking. I have, I have that now in one of the homes <laughs> in one of the homes that I'm building. My second floor is at their guy's roof line already because we have it's it's 14 feet slab to slab. And then so... He's at five. We're at 10 plus 14 plus another 10 on top of it. So we're towering over them. But I'd rather be in my in my house in a category five storm than than his. Is doing multi-million dollar spec homes sustainable and scalable? I think that it's sustainable for the time being. I don't know necessarily how scalable it is because to be scalable, you have to do a lot. And these are very capital intensive. And generally you get worse financing terms, maybe it's 50 or 60% that you have to put up as opposed to, I mean, barring what we're at today with everything, you know, generally you were able to get 70, 75, 80% money for multifamilies and homes you were like 60 to 70. And so it's very capital intensive. And three years out, you could get stuck with four of those homes and that's eaten more than 100% of your profit on all the other homes. So I would not want to ever do more than two or three at a time because I think it's easy to sell two or three. I wouldn't want to be doing you know 10 or 15 homes at a time unless they were much 
lower price point. And now that holds a whole nother set of issues because no one can afford those homes because rates are so high and no one's qualifying anymore just based on the debt service. So, And it's so personal. Like This isn't something I think you can delegate to a lot of people for the level of finish and luxury that you're doing. Like It's a very personal endeavor. So to have 10 homes going on at once, you can't be in 10 different places at once. You can't. And you don't want to put the same kitchen in all 10, the same bathroom. So you you need to change it up. And then that gets you know, really difficult as well. So let's talk about the multifamily side. Sure. Because that's where you're going. So you played in the residential side, the single family homes. Maybe that keeps going for specific opportunities. But you think the real opportunity is actually now in luxury rentals. So I want to get your definition sure. of a luxury rental because it's going to be different around the country. What are you doing and what is a luxury rental to well, you? I mean, I even think it's different just in Miami. So people's definitions of I, 100%. Uh, of of luxury. To me, luxury is is twofold. It's what you can see and you can feel and you can touch whether it's the type of kitchens or or the closets or or, or the bathrooms, but it's also the level of service that you get. And so my mind is instead of having one building with 700 apartments where the doorman is going to have no idea who you are, I would rather have more buildings with 100 apartments, 150 apartments, even 80 apartments. As long as, I mean, there's some sort of economies that you need. But for the most part, like what we're doing in Bay Harbor, it's 150 apartments spread out through three buildings. So the doormen are going to know your name. They say, hey, Mr. Wars, like, how, Mr. Curtin, how are your kids? Like, I, I want that level of service because I find that when the service is really good, people pay up and they don't mind or complain about paying a little bit more. And obviously, we want to charge as much as we can for these rentals. So that's that's one component. And then the other thing is, you know, many people and, you know, I have guys to go and shop other buildings just to see what's out there. Number one, these three buildings are going to be the first three buildings built in sort of the Miami Beach side of Miami in I mean, decades. There have never been luxury buildings built as pure rentals. Valet, doorman, gym in all the buildings, rooftop pools, on-site building management. You're not going to get kicked out after one or two years. I mean, unless you do something nefarious, but you know, so that's that's what I think has been missing all along. Because I don't I don't necessarily think the American dream is to to be a, a homeowner or an apartment owner at this point. I think people, especially the generations below us, they want to be a little bit more mobile. And so having that freedom is, uh, is I think, is comforting for a lot. What are some of the differences in the finishes sure. in your building versus what other people yeah. call luxury building? Because so, in Miami, there's like all these condos that people rent, mm-hmm. but it's not a rental building. No. So like that has a luxury finish, but rental buildings are all rentals and yours look different. So how do they look different? So- we're doing all Bosch stainless steel appliances instead of GE appliances. All of our custom, all of our cabinets are custom from Italy. They're all getting shipped in from Italy. They have the slow close. The main differentiator between ours is that all of our closets, master closets and secondary, they're all built out with shelving, wow. with drawers, the whole thing. Because I cannot tell you how many times, even $50,000 a month apartments, they have like one mesh thing and a rod. And like here, that's not luxury to me, right? So when you're building buildings that you want people to rent, it's all about creating like a mousetrap, right? What is better? Why will someone choose my building over there? Well, if they can save a couple grand when they move in, I'm not having to build out all of their closets, that may be a better mousetrap. It also just shows, I think, 
that we've spent a little bit more time and care in the building process where we generally care because I want I want to own these buildings. I want to give them to my kids. These are not a build and flip type of thing. We're not necessarily IRR driven. We're sort of more yield on cost driven. And so for us, we want to own these forever. We want to pick up the depreciation. We want to get cash flow. I think that's how you create generational wealth. And so we we care about what we're putting into the buildings because ultimately we have to maintain them. Even just the flooring, you know, some I go to some of these buildings and they they have vinyl wood floors and they're getting five bucks a foot in rent. I mean, we're doing nice porcelain floors, you know, th- things of that nature. Our doors are all wood trim. So it just it's I think it's just sort of creating more of a, a home type of feel. What kind of trade-offs or not not trade-offs, but your potential customers in these luxury residential buildings that you're doing in Bay Harbor, what else are they considering? Like where else would they go if they didn't rent in your building? So our buildings are not, at least these three in Bay Harbor, not necessarily the thing I'm doing in Wynwood, but these three in Bay Harbor are more for families. It's a family area. They have their own police force. You can walk to the beach. You're a mile away from the Whole Foods. They have a great school district. And so you can walk to Bell Harbor shops. So these, our average unit size is 1,850 square feet. So they're all two bedrooms to five bedrooms. And so We've designed it for families. We've thought about what their needs might be. So, you know, just things things of that nature. How did you source the sites? Very interesting. So this was in 2020, summer of 21. I had just gone away with the family and I said I was going to take some time off. We just sold all the three previous homes and the next batch of homes were in design phase. So they were in the architect's hand at that point and weren't so intensive for me and we didn't talk about it, but you made a lot of money on these three homes. We did okay. You did okay. We made a couple shekels. Good. Yeah. I like it. We made some shekels. And so I was sitting on vacation and this is so random. I got a call from my sister's high school's tutor in Los Angeles who went to UCLA and then he went to, I think it's called Anderson School of Business out in, in LA. So he graduated with honors you know, there. And uh, I, I didn't go to business school. I'm not that educated, but I think they have like a form or something where you can post. Well, we went to University of Miami Business School undergrad. We, we did. Uh, it's va- I don't think I could get in again, honestly. <laughs> no, I couldn't either. <laughs> no way I could get in. <laughs> I'm, I've never been academic smart. I'm much more street smart. So he calls me, he's like, have you ever heard of Bay Harbor? I said, yeah. I didn't know it like I know it today. He goes, oh, well, I'm in class with this guy from Chile whose dad owns this project and it was in COVID and he couldn't come to the States and they couldn't get financing. And so I said, sure, send it to me. And I literally told my wife, like, next two weeks, I'm going to take off. Like, everything's right. This is day two. Luckily, it was cold and rainy where we were in the Hamptons. So I had nothing to do but but do this research. And so it was also, the first building was 28 units. It was a manageable size that I could do by myself that God forbid it went belly up. I could still get my money out by selling them or selling the building. So it was manageable. And I I think, you know, before you do one home, then you do three, right? You do one smaller building and then you can do whatever you want because it's the same thing, just different scales. And so I I had no, at the time, no outside capital, no partners, uh, no investors, and so I bought the site myself with my credit facility that we touched on. And throughout the process, I realized that it was sold to me as a fully entitled condo doc approved condo building. I don't ever want to build condos. I I should say never, but my first, if I could snap my fingers, 
it's always luxury rentals or some sort of cash flowing business is what I want to invest in. But so the project was a disaster. It was uh, I, I, the it was a ninety two thousand square foot building with only thirty eight thousand net sellable. So I told the guy was we were negotiating, and he he didn't really speak that well of English. He mostly speaks Spanish, and my Spanish is absolutely horrible. So I had my owner's rep who translate this because I don't want to be rude, but I'm like, if you gave me five million dollars to do this building, I would lose money. He said, like, "No, I know." I said. I said, this is not very well designed, no offense, but I'm going to make you an offer, but it's based on land value and starting over because ultimately that's what I had to do. So he, you know, oh, I don't know. I have a JV that could say, you know, the whole, the whole, yeah. everyone's a seller until they get an offer. They're like, what are you talking about? I have 25 guys lined up to buy this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, okay, you can JV with a group that you've never heard of. It's still going to take you three years. Probably not going to make any money because the guy doesn't know what he's doing in Florida. And so I said, or you can lose a little bit of money, you can get out, and then move on. And so he luckily chose me. We closed. I started the whole entire process over again from scratch. And we were able to literally flip the loss factor, right? We went, it's still 92,000 square foot building, and we have about 55,000 now of net rentable. So that made the numbers much more creative to building rentals. And also we were early. So my price per door, my price per foot, my price per net buildable foot, substantially less than everyone else. Like I think our average for all three buildings for 150 apartments, we paid 32.3 for the land. So that's about 218 a door. And so while we're the only rentals and the other buildings are condos, everyone else is paying four and 500 a door. So we, we were early, thank God. So you're now older and you're smarter than you were when you did that first back home in LA and you just like jumped right into it. But this was multifamily. It was something new. What were the things that you were really thinking hard about to know that you were making a good decision? So again, you know, I was a little bit of a gambler when I left the family business. I was a little bit of a gambler when I put all my money into that basket. And so like the only way to make a difference, I think, is if you work really, really hard, the harder you work, the luckier you get is what I found. And so just trying to figure out and really take the time. Like I drove around that neighborhood 85 times, right? Just like what is the demographic of the people that are living there, meeting with the mayor. It's a small, it's its own municipality. So their own building, they have their own building department, they have their own town council, which is a whole another disaster in itself. But you know, it's just meeting with the locals and saying, listen, I'm here for the long haul. These are rental buildings that, by the way, I'm going to own forever. The tax basis is going to go from 200 grand, basically, for all the sites to close to $2 million. So there's a huge benefit for the town to allow me to do these buildings and sort of not get in my way. But a lot of times, building departments like to get in the way. And so Again, it was it was a manageable size of a building that I felt I could take the risk by myself and, and go from there. And I always wanted to do rentals because I thought by having long-term cash flowing assets is how you can build generational type of wealth. I want to pass it on to my family. I want to pick up the depreciation, which you can't really perform, right? And but that's a huge savings. You're not gonna pay tax these buildings for numbers of years. And so it it just from an investment standpoint seemed better. It was more tax efficient. So that's why we decided to go with rentals. So if you're going rentals and you're going to have cash flow, you're not going to sell, but you're going to refi. I think you have 
partner or a partner in this deal. How did you think about structuring the deal with the partner to make sure that your intentions of creating kind of this generational long hold also aligned with his, but you as the sponsor also got paid for doing all the work? Yeah. So up until the second building that we bought in Bay Harbor, I was all the equity myself. I didn't have any partners. And so at that point, I had a little bit of a track record. I had gone through COVID. I had gone through price escalations. And so I was, people had seen that I was able to get things done and, 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 it was, and the quality was there. And so I said, the only way I'm ever really going to scale is, is OPM, right? Other people's money. And so I always, up until the second building, I always thought using other people's money was kind of like, like the cheap way out, right? Like I came from a family business that like had no partners and my great grandfather started selling lumber and he made a huge, a huge company. And so that's how I thought it was done. But the world then and the world now are very different where you have these REITs and these funds that are just fee whores that don't really care about the end product, but they're making so much money in fees. And, and like anything above the IRR is an option play for them, right? Because they're just, they're just making their money on the fees. And so to me, that always seemed a little cheap. Like if I said I own it, I want to own all of it. Again, I'm older and wiser. The only way to scale is 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 having help. You need help from other people. And my investor partner friend now, he had actually hired me to build his house for him on Allison Island. He moved, or he's planning to move down. He's two more kids that have to finish high school. Uh, he's from Boston. He's moving down. And so throughout that process, we became close. And he said, "You know, I, I love South Florida. I'm very bullish on South Florida." I had a hedge fund. I no longer have a hedge fund. I have my own family office and we love to invest in real estate and young guys that we think are smart that we can really help watch their careers go. He had, There's a group in Boston that he sort of was to seed money for, for a fund and now they're a massive company. So he, he likes to help people, I guess, select people and help watch them grow. And he's, he's, he's been amazing. And so I called him when the second opportunity in Bay Harbor came up and I said, I don't necessarily have to have the money, but it would be nice to you know have a partner and not have to put all the capital up on myself. So I think when you're negotiating with someone, also who they want to do the deal, they want in, but you're coming from a place of wanting the money, not needing the money. I think it's a very different negotiation than if I was like, I need the money so bad, please help me, help me, help me. And so we negotiated, and again, all about these mousetraps. I didn't take a fee on these projects because I was able to get a fifty over a ten, which is pretty miraculous and uh, and unheard of. And so he told me not to negotiate that. He doesn't want to regret agreeing to that later, but he wanted me to have enough upside where I worked really hard for it because the more money he makes, the more money I make and vice versa. So that's how that investor started. So for all the non-real estate folks and for the real estate folks out there, after the deal gets a 10% return, you're basically 50-50 with this guy. And I think you put up maybe 20% of the capital or something. So it's an amazing structure, but the reality is if the residual value is so far out into the future and everyone has that mindset, it's not it's not that crazy. Like that's how a lot of the deals back in the day got done. Mm-hmm. And I think with the financialization of real estate, things have changed a little bit, but maybe not necessarily well, it depends. On, it depends on the investor, right? There are some yeah. funds that they want in. It's close-ended fund, and they have a, they have a mandate that they have to sell everything within seven years, right? right? And so, I don't ever want to be under the gun like that. That doesn't seem like an enjoyable place to be, right? Things take significantly longer than anyone can think of, and so 
it depends on the capital and the investors and the partners that you have, right? And so these partners that I have may not want to do every deal I ever present to them. They may have a mandate. They want to only do Miami Beach luxury residential. They may, but there are other deals out there that will make sense and make just as much money as these other ones do. But you know, they, everyone's specific to what they think is the best. And so we're going to start raising some more outside capital now that we have sort of a track record because there are other deals out there that I think could work. What have you learned most from this investor? That as long as you treat their money like it's your money, no matter if you have problems or not, they will be there for you for the most part. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of people get greedy. I'm not overly greedy. Like these guys are helping me in more ways than you could ever imagine. Like they're helping me grow my company and scale. And so I don't get how people can just take, take, take and not sort of have a, a reciprocity to to the project. I mean, these guys are helping me out. Like, why would I? I want to do right by them. I want to think that their money is my money and vice versa. So I think that that's my biggest thing. When it, there's a whole level, a whole nother level of taking outside capital of stress. Development is one thing, but other people's money, believing in you, and like you, you die by the sword and you live by the sword, right? And so the best thing that could happen is I make everyone a bunch of money. The worst thing is the that. It doesn't do as well as we thought, but at least they knew it every step of the way. It's open book. And I didn't do anything nefarious where that the reasons that it didn't do well are because of me. And I think that's really important when you take the next step to sort of take other people's money. I've learned that communication is really important. Yeah. So how are you thinking about communication with this investor as the project's going on? So through this process, we've become very friendly and very close. We we call each other every day. Sometimes we don't even talk about the projects. It's just to talk shop, basically. But also, he's older than me. He's He's been through up markets, down markets. He's made money. He's lost money. So it's just like an older friend that I can speak to about problems. For example, Bay Harbor, right when I bought all the projects, they were so pro-developed. We want the development. We love it. We were finally getting our moment in the sun. And then they were like, oh, but crap, all these buildings have to get built and there's going to be construction and there's going to be parking issues and there's going to be uh, GCs and it's going to be a disaster. So they tried to enact a what I thought and all my lawyers thought was a illegal development moratorium. There was no emergency. They just thought, ah, there's too much construction. <laughs> and so, I mean, that was a level of communication. I, I called the investor and I said, here's what's going on. He's like, kidding me? And... There have been multiple instances like this that we've had to go through. The development moratorium, they just want to do a full six-month stop. Can't do it. There's people have rights. They wanted to lower... So the parking requirements in Bay Harbor are like draconian. It's two to one, whether you're in a studio or a five-bedroom. And so you and you have a 65-foot height limit. And you're no longer allowed to go subterranean because of FEMA and Durham and the flooding issues. So you're trying to fit everything into a 65-foot high building. And so the town didn't want people to have parking lifts, but it was in the code that we could. So if I don't have a lift, I don't get the amount of apartments. So you know I need 56 spaces for 20 units. So they tried to get rid of the lift amount. So that was another call. I, this is what's happening. So it's just constant communication. And honestly, they, they flew down for the meetings just to be there as support. Like, you know, and so I I think having someone who you can trust, like to speak to when things are not good, is just as important, or if not more, than when things are 
You know, there are no complaints when everyone's making money, right? No, nope. it's just when their problems. Nope. All the investors call you when stuff's going wrong. Exactly. And it's always the smallest investor. Always. Most questions. That guy gives millions and millions. Okay, that's cool. Guy who gives a little bit. What's going on? Why is it? I don't see Ukraine there today. But, you know, I'm like, just relax. Yeah, we have over 300 investors now, wow. I think. And we use a platform to manage it all, which is something you should consider when, when you start. One of the things I, I think I find really interesting with you is... A lot of times when people have some success mm-hmm. and maybe they want to do something new or they want to start a company, they end up like hiring a lot of people and building up a big payroll and a big PL. You've done it with a different approach. Like you've kind of worked with, I call it independent contractors, mm-hmm. people on specific jobs. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that's been your philosophy? Yeah, I think that no one is going to do it as well as I can do it. I'm not saying I'm the best or the smartest, but for me, I know that if I'm in control of every step of the process, it will go smoother. I also think that being successful is part of going through the shit and feeling the struggle and learning every side of every single little business. Now the company's gotten bigger. I've I've hired a few people. And so they've helped sort of alleviate the day-to-day sort of bookkeeping, underwriting, analysis, like all the stuff that was sort of preventing me from growing the business or the company. These guys help run the business so I can grow the company. And so that's where we've transitioned. But when I was younger, oh, I need a big office. I need to have seven guys working for me. But that's just, that's that's an ego thing. That's not a, a work thing. And there may be a year or two years where I don't buy anything. And so I don't want to have to pay these guys big salaries to sit there and really do nothing. And so... I thought it's better to start slow and you know from a gross revenue the the company is doing as well but we're I'd say three full-time employees me and then some other people but I always wanted to outsource I hire the engineers I hire the GCs for specific projects again because I don't I don't want to have these people on my payroll if I don't need them it's also not biting off more than you can chew I think we, I've made this mistake it's like taking on too many projects because you see the opportunity and you want to do it and you might get through it, but you definitely bump along the way and there's going to be some sacrifices. Even just from a, a, a people perspective, like an HR perspective, like I, I'm friendly, but I'm not like Mr. Chipper all the time, right? And so like, and I'm an acquired taste. I curse, I swear, <laughs> I yell at people all the time. But, you know, our line of work is very expensive babysitting. That's what it is because there's emotions involved and the electricians don't want to work when the mechanical guys are there and the guys, the plumbers don't want to work when when the drywall guys are there. So everyone's like, everyone's a baby. And so it's just managing that as well, I think, is is challenging. And so if I don't have to hear about 10 other employees' lives, you know, ups and downs, like, it just makes life easier. And, and being nimble, I think, is key in environments, especially like this, like I like. I'm buying something in Wynwood, which I don't even know if we discussed. But I wasn't looking to buy anything. And because I was sort of just waiting on the sidelines, waiting to see what's happening with rates, what's happening to see with projects that may or may not get stalled. And, you know, Florida is its own sort of ecosystem. So, like, things are still pretty good here, whereas the outside of the world, it's, it's it, it, in other cities, it's not that great. So... I reach out to brokers all the time just to sort of see what's transacting, just to get a feel for what's going on. And I said, only send me stuff you know I'm going to like. So of course he sends me like 25 things. And this is like number 23 of 25. I'm like, this guy doesn't listen. It's like, I don't want any of these things. So I get to this final one in Wynwood. And it was interesting because it was it was in Wynwood. I liked the area. 
yes, there's a lot of development going on, but the seller of the site was offered me seller financing at 5% money for three years IO. He also wasn't ready to leave the space. So he wanted to do a sale lease back for $370,000 a year. So that 370 carries my cost for 21 months. So he's basically paying himself. He, he, no, I'm making 8% of my money. I'm oh, you ma- are? Yeah, because yeah. the site is 7.7. Seven, seven. We're putting down 3.8. Okay. The guy's giving me 3.70. I mean, it's, it's a covered land play. And so while I'm getting my ducks in a row, I, Kobe Carp's going to design it. I also decided to use the Live Local Act, which is, I think, has the chance to become a, a major success. Okay, so let's talk about that. Okay. What is the Live Local Act? Okay, so in July of this year, the state legislature up in Tallahassee was trying to spur workforce housing development. I don't think necessarily it was with Miami in mind. Um, I think it was for the smaller sort of tertiary cities out in- Well, this is Florida. So it's always with Miami yeah, in mind because that's where I the guess, money they is. Said yeah. it, they said it wasn't. <laughs> and so the Live Local Act says that if you have, if you set aside 40% of your total apartments- at a workforce housing level. So it's based off of a, an AMI, an average medium income. And I think in Miami Dade, it's 74, 75,000 for this year. So if you, you can make up to 120 times that. So that's, that's people making 100, 120, $150,000. Yeah, that's a very good salary. But again, people have been priced out because of everything that's happening. So they want to spur development. So they said, if you take 40% of your total units within a one mile radius, you can choose the highest and biggest density. And so in Wynwood, it's very close to Edgewater. And Edgewater has the highest sort of density and price per dwelling unit per acre. And so this site is technically D1, which is low industrial use, which is 14 apartments. With Live Local, I was able to put 155 apartments. So now we're going, and I borrowed from, from Edgewater, so we're going to go up 200 feet. So now on this small little site, we were able to get our price per door of $42,000. That's, that's pre-pandemic levels by a lot. I'm paying seven seven, which is four fifty dollars a foot for the land, $73 a foot net rentable. Pre-pandemic, the average sale price in Wynwood was six fifty a foot. Now it's about eight fifty a foot. So I'm getting a forty percent discount to the market. So there were all of these things that just said, okay, it, it makes sense. It makes sense to buy this. And also, it, it's on Twenty Sixth Street by where Five Forty Five Win opened up this new office building that has a lot of cool tenants in there. And so you have these downtown views. You also have all the West View, so you'll see the sunset every night. We're going to try and put a paddle court on the top, so it'll be the highest paddle court in all of Miami. It'll also be the first building that has ballet and doorman in Wynwood. We're going to build out the closets. So it's going to be luxury residential. Luxury rentals. With workforce housing. With workforce housing. But the secret about workforce housing is that if you're getting $2,600 a month for 400 square foot studio, on a price per square foot basis, that's better than market, right? So the only difference is you really can't increase the rent more than what the what HUD or whoever the agency is that uh, provides that. So maybe my free market go up 7% a year, God willing, and the workforce doesn't go up 3 or 4%. Those are the little facts that happen with, with this site and Wynwood and Live Local. But the interesting thing about Live Local is that my analyst was reading all the paperwork and I didn't know this when I bought this or anything about the Live Local. If you follow those rules... You can deduct 75% 
in real estate tax off the new appraised value. So if the new value is, I'm making it up, $100 million, instead of paying 2% on $100 million as real estate tax, you're now paying 2% on $25 million. So the performer, you go from $2 million to $400,000, $500,000 in tax, you're saving $1.3 million a year just in real estate tax. It's a huge, huge, huge benefit. Now, they have a couple of things that I think that they need to fix. The parking they didn't touch. There's still whatever the local zoning is of parking requirements. So that's that's pretty hard. And they didn't really touch FAR, FLR, the floor area ratio or floor lot coverage ratio. And so those are things that I think there are a lot of people have spent a lot of money in lobbyists that they're going to go back and fix in the, in the new legislative in January and February. So how do you get comfortable with the potential risk of this live local changing because it's only going to get better. committing to the investment. So the Live Local Act now makes the deal work. So the only thing that will happen is if they get rid of the parking requirements, not, not get rid of it, lower the amount of price of unit, the building will just grow. So you'll be able to put more units because the overlay is a thousand units an acre. So this is 0.4 acres. You could put, you could technically put 400 apartments. Now I wouldn't because you would have to go so high that there's a diminishing return on that investment. But the sweet spot, we're at 152. I think the sweet spot would be maybe 180. Then that makes the deal, sort of the yield on cost is like a 9% on lever today with 10.5% money. So is it fair to say that, but for Live Local, you would have never bought the site, never done the deal? 100%. You can't. Why would I buy this as a single story, low industrial use that has 14 apartments? So- it has the potential to spur a massive amount of development. And I think that being someone who thinks Miami is the best city in America and has invested my entire like livelihood into this city, I think that there are obviously things that can improve. And one of them is you need to have people who work in those areas be able to live in those areas. Because otherwise, you're going to scare away the quality work if you have to drive two hours or an hour each day to get to your to get to get your job. I, d- I don't think people want that. It's going to turn into LA. Correct. I mean, in the hotel business in LA, you have housekeepers, room attendants, front desk people that are driving two hours there and back just to yeah. get to work because you can't afford to live near the hotel. No. You, and you need to you need to have people that that like we said, they can work and, and live in close proximity, especially because everyone here, the unemployment is 1.7%. So everyone's working. So you you want people to have that sense of community too when when they live and work in the same areas. What was the biggest learning curve pivoting from single family residential, ultra luxury stuff to luxury residential and multifamily? That the little screw ups are significantly more expensive. It's interesting. You deal with the engineers are slightly better. The architects are you know, a little bit more advanced in terms of just building the buildings and stuff like that. So that has been pleasurable to to work with a sort of higher echelon of, of engineers and architects. But there are still problems. You know, we were starting this construction site, and I pray and I pay these guys a, a pre uh, the the contractor pre construction fee, and we, they didn't even notice that I, we have a FPNL pole that's leaning like this into my property, like so. We're, we're very close anyway, because it's 10 feet setback and OSHA requires 10 feet from any live electricity. Yeah. And so we're at 10 feet, but now it's leaning into my property. So now we can, I'm like, you, you've been here seven times before we started, you didn't look up to see the pole. So there's still human error all the time. You know, the dewatering, when you have to deal with like different agencies, that gets really, really challenging. There's a lot more requirements. Like in single family homes, you can get away with a little bit more. 
Like these are, you have a site safety inspector that's there all the time. There's no BS. There's no horsing around. These guys come in, they work, they leave. There's OSHA. It's, it's, it's a whole level of, another level of sort of sophistication. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. Okay. And I'm excited for your answer because we didn't talk about this, but you actually grew up kind of in the hotel business. Yeah. Your family had a lot of hotels, well-known hotels. So my question is, what's your favorite hotel? In the world? Yeah. Very good question. It might be the Amanpuri in, in Thailand. That place, the service was amazing. We were in Phuket and it was just, the food was exceptional. Like they were just there at, for everything that you wanted. And I thought that was really, really exceptional. It's an iconic hotel. Yeah. No one does it better. No. It's crazy. And it's been that way for so long. They actually have residences there. It was amazing. The mango there, that sticky rice was insane. You love it. It was delicious. Well, Mon's coming to Miami. I know, but it's not gonna. you're not going to have all, all the, the service. No. <laughs> the service here and there are very different. <laughs> very different. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.